pep, pep, bla, 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 bla. Hello, and welcome to See One, Do One, Teach One, the podcast dedicated to becoming a better medical educator. With me, Pick Mukherjee. And Tom Pereira. Today we get a visit from the land of the little people, and we continue our evaluation of some of the common learning theories. Hello, welcome. We are lucky enough to have David Foster with us, who is a career educator, uh, as many of you will already know, and also holds a fellowship in pediatric emergency medicine. So we thought it would be perfect to ask Dave, what is different when you are teaching residents clinically when you're in the pediatric area? Observation. Uh, you know, observing the child, observing the interaction with the family. Um, we talk about gestalt a lot in emergency medicine. We talk about heuristics a lot, you know, pattern recognition. When you walk in the room and you see the child is happy, playing, uh, clinging on to their parents, you know, you feel better than when you walk in the room and you see the child that is in distress. So just using your heuristics when you walk in, taking your time to really elicit what's going on, uh, and then, you know, building your assessment and plan from there. So is it easier or not as easy to do sick, not sick, when I walk into the room and it's a pediatric case? I, I think that uh, the more you get familiar with it, it's uh, a bit easier. Kids, you know, instead of describing how they feel, show you how they feel. So there's more um, loss of function when they're not doing well. You know, they're not interactive. They're not breathing well. You know, they're not getting up and moving from you. Or the opposite. They're jumping up and down. They're trying to turn the TV on, they're crawling around, uh, and you know that they're not peritoneal in their belly. I've seen you in the pediatric emergency department, and I think one of your absolute strengths is how you've learned to talk to parents and talk to children in a way that establishes your competence uh, and still allows the child to feel comfortable with you. Yeah, I think uh, entertaining them, you know, um, depending on the age. Uh, walking in and you know engaging the child first, asking them what they're doing, um, giving them things to uh, to color with or draw with uh, or to play with. Sometimes just having them open up a syringe. They like pulling the plastic and you know playing around with it. Kind of gives them um, a sense that you're not threatening to them. Um, allows you to assess uh, you know their interests and kind of functionality in it. You know makes them feel important. I feel like we uh, have this low hanging fruit of saying that you can tell the pediatricians because they have the fuzzy like koala on their stethoscope and the, the, the jiggly glittery glasses. And I feel like what you're saying is that's not just for show or because they're just happier than the rest of us. There is like a work-related professional aspect to that. And, and our uh, residents and trainees should actually pick that up. Yeah, I think that parents feel more comfortable uh, with you being in the room, interacting with their child that way. You know, you don't want to walk in and beeline uh, and start trying to look into the ear. You don't want to walk in and beeline and start trying to, you know, put your scary stethoscope, you know, on their chest and, and hope they're going to breathe normal. Somebody who had a, a pets once explained to me that if you, you should approach it like if you met a stranger who had a dog, uh, you would make friends with the owner, and once their demeanor and tone toward you relaxed, then the pet would also relax. So, like, making friends with the parents and entertaining the kid, uh, also uh, both important. So, one of the things that I've seen you do that's wonderful, and this podcast being called See One, Do One, Teach One, you were describing 
the different types of uh, resident patient interactions and how you go through them in a shift. Can you talk about that? Yeah, I think that everyone wants to be valued and a good team player during their shift. And um, you have to be adaptable and kind of do a zone defense. The classic resident going in the room, uh, doing the history physical, coming up with an assessment and plan and presenting to the attending, uh, and the attending going in and double checking and agreeing is great. Um, but th that's not very uh, efficient or effective in a busy ED. Um, sometimes uh, you have to work in tandem with each other where you're both in the room on the same page, parodying questions back and forth. Sometimes um, I may make it into the room first and I'm actually presenting to the resident and I'm asking questions based on my presentation, what they want to do or what they're thinking of. So I love the modeling of the first one, you know, showing what questions uh, seem to get the most meaningful responses can be a great way to teach. And in the second method, the reversal keeps things interested uh, and forces the resident to think about the case in a different way. Yeah, I think also interacting with the, the parents or the caregivers, sometimes I, I might have a feeling that the resident isn't as sure of what we're doing and why. And so when I explain things to the, the parent um, or the patient about this is what we're thinking, this is how a test might help or this is how um, a follow-up might help, you know, or this is why I don't think other bad things are going on, um, I can kind of put it into the context of the, of the resident learning it in a different way. So you're explaining it to the parents, but you're also showing a great way to teach it to the resident. So the power of a good explanation over the positive or negative test, I, I hugely believe in. But I, I love how all of this is modeling. And one of the things about modeling is so much of it might be sort of unconscious and you just, you know, imitate your, your mentors. But it helps when you spell it out, right? So if you do like a directed observation, if you said, listen, this parent is, I can tell from the door, tense, um, but this kid, look at him, he's playing, and, and, and I've noticed this already. Watch how I first talk to this person and then do this. I'm going to show you how, and then that directed observation kind of cues in the trainee to go, that's what that is. It's not just fuzzy koalas. The other big piece about pediatrics that I would like to talk about is the teaching around testing. The residents go over to pediatrics and they say, I practice medicine differently over there. Why? I, I think in general pediatrics, you're used to doing less testing. You know, your, your pretest probability for most kids is, is much lower for something bad going on. The hard part about pediatrics is kind of picking that needle out of the haystack of uh, when do I need to do a test uh, to find the bad thing. You can be a really bad doctor, do the wrong thing by not ordering tests and most kids are going to be fine. You can be a really bad doctor by doing the wrong thing and ordering too many tests and the kids are still going to be fine. What makes you a great doctor is knowing when to initiate testing and, and more importantly how to act upon that. I think it's so hard to live in that top 5% of variation and, and because like you said, you, you, you could do most things wrong and still have most patients do well. Like a monkey could literally jam the keyboard orders and, and get a hit. I also feel like the feedback then is so much less, right? Uh, if you're on a call and looking at the, your bounce back and someone says, hey, run Mrs. Johnson, and your brain immediately goes to the what did I do wrong, that happens so much less often in Pete's. So it all, that's all pretest probability, right? Yeah. You have a well population, and the thing to teach is doing stuff isn't helping. You were talking about harm reduction being almost a bigger piece. And that would be uh, testing always has downsides. Uh, everything you do, uh, trying to do to help the patient is you're doing something to the patient. 
And if you're just increasing the unknown consequences, undesired consequences, there should be some measure of benefit. And if most people do well, that risk benefit gets skewed. Why haven't we brought this back to adults? Why are we still getting so many labs on adults when kids are fine? I think that a lot of it is when uh, we're pushing an extreme, and we always talk about how extremes are easy. I, I, I can tell the really sick person. I can tell the really benign person. Uh, but sometimes when we uh, don't know how to manage the really sick person, we think ordering more testing is going to be helpful. Checking the lactate and trending and seeing where it goes, seeing how high the white count is going to be in this infection. But, but we're not doing anything to, to make the person better. So I think that with a conundrum of a child, and we don't know what's going on, um, we kind of fall into ordering more and more tests. Um, if we're afraid that we need to do an intervention to make them better, it, it, we can feel safe and uh, hanging behind ordering tests. Um, but you have all the consequences of downstream testing, not just that there's harm in uh, obtaining an IV and blood test from a kid or obtaining a urine catheterization from a kid, um, but there's red herrings from results. There's harm and cost financially. There's harm and cost to the other uh, people in the hospital, the technicians, the lab, the radiologists that have to result those. You find things that might cause more um, psychological distress, but no meaningful right. outcome to the patient. So, so all of the testing isn't necessarily a good patient-oriented outcome. And I think the three of us are kind of on board with that whole downstream harms, too much testing is a bad thing. But, you know, I, I think that there is a component of risk aversion towards your kid. To you, a, a, a blood test, a line, an IV is already an invasive thing to do to your kid when to yourself you would you would tolerate this in general right and part of it is it's not me part of it's i'm protective of my child part of it is they are a child and grown-ups are just supposed to be tough summing up education around children the heuristics of deciding who is sick and not sick still a number one there are lots to teach around communication and interaction and decision-making with children. And one of the things that's great is that we don't rely on testing in everybody to say that something is or is not true. And it, and it makes for a very fulfilling uh, part of the emergency medicine. And if there's one thing that's very similar between the peds and the adult group, uh, it's going to be the importance of good safety netting and discharge instructions and things to watch for, which we emphasize in both groups, right? Yeah. The kid doing everything they normally do and looking fine is great. The same with the adult. Normal vital signs, eating and drinking, walking around the ED and no distress, really checks a lot of the boxes off um, that these bad things aren't going on. Thank you, Dr. Foster. Okay, Tom, we had started talking about learning theories as the background uh, for all the education stuff, and we had talked about three major ones. Right, so this is a part two. Uh, the three ones that we went over already, behaviorist, which was uh, essentially all about learn something by doing it and getting feedback. Uh, so we like to relate it to the name of our podcast, of course, but a lot of it was do something until you get it right, and then you get that checkbox that says, yes, you've completed this milestone. Great. So you have to perform something. It's good for competence-based learning. You tweak it till you get it right. The a second theory was the cognitivist, and that is much more about uh, processing information and uh, about perception and about memory. Uh, it has to do with making connections between 
thoughts and, and parts of medicine. And uh, a big part of that we learned was reflection. You learn something new, uh, you reflect on it, and you put it in the whole model of what you did before. Right. And then the third one we talked about was uh, humanism, which was really about uh, getting people to see learning as a fulfilling uh, activity, that they were going to be self-driven, that learning was required for them to be like a fully functional human being. Uh, and, and it was actually about the future learning and learning how to learn and sort of inspiring people to learn. So today we're going to talk about social learning theory or social learning orientation. And to me, this feels a lot like the behavioralist. So, so pick what makes it different? So behavioralism definitely has some component of uh, you may need positive feedback uh, and a, a role model to show you how to do the thing. But this one is actually very much around observation. So this is, this is very role modeling, but you can actually just observe someone who is sort of your ideal mentor, great teacher I want to be, uh, and uh, just through the observation, you will align yourself with those, their activities and you'll, you'll acquire the knowledge by imitating it uh, and doing it on your own. So the, the big difference between social learning theory and the behaviorist is that you can learn without doing. So if you have a model that you watch, there is still good learning that goes on. And I think that this is uh, very good for us because there are those rare diseases, rare procedures where it's not so easy to get the physical experience doing them and the feedback from it. So you have to be able to learn from a more abstract uh, way of learning uh, and and by uh, reading or modeling and understanding it in your head. And it actually goes broader than just behavioralism because now that you have aligned yourself with the master teacher role model, uh, you want to be them and not just in the way they put it in the central line, uh, but in a much broader range of behaviors. Uh, and it probably gets into the uh, exploring their mindset uh, and, and even their cognitive uh, processes. So, uh, so yeah, I think we, we always think role modeling is so important and social learning orientation definitely gets to that. And the way you're saying this really brings up the idea that none of these theories exist in a vacuum. Like it is almost impossible to have pure one theory because you sort of headed toward humanism there as well. I, I absolutely did. And, and then we kind of go to the uh, other one, which is actually uh, probably my personal fave. It's the constructivist learning theory. And in my head, that does live as an offshoot of cognitivism uh, because it does have to do with knowledge forming within the learner, so it's that internal process stuff. Um, but it is it is different from the standard cognitivism because you do take in the information and process it and move it and connect it, but it's also integrated with everything you already knew, and that means since you are a unique creature with your own previous lived experiences, you're going to construct a different thing than basically anyone else. I think it's really important that when any of us go through an experience, let's say we're in the, uh, in the trauma room and we're going through a code and certain things happen, everybody's perception about what happened and thus the takeaway lessons they're going to have from that code are very different. So it is one of the reasons why going through and doing, let's say, a debrief and having people express their opinions, uh, you really see that people saw the code very differently and there's a lot to learn in those situations. I actually like that ex uh, explanation a lot. The, the learners are creating their own meaning from the same experience and, that, uh, and their interpretation and their meaning may differ in, in a lot of ways. And as the teacher, 
if you take a constructivist orientation, it actually becomes important to explore their previous knowledge and prior experiences they bring to it. Uh, and and I, th I think your example is perfect. Those are, I think, the five learning theories that every medical educator should know. Thank you very much. Okay, Pick, always striving to be better teachers. What are you going to try today? Well, I like the idea of really explicitly thinking about the social learning and modeling, which we do all the time, like we're always on. And Dave Foster was talking about how in PEDS, there's a lot of modeling going on that's not so explicit, right? That the fuzzy thing and the, the, the nice behavior is, is actually for a purpose. So I'm going to do, I'm going to try to do a modeling where I'm going to walk in and, and have the trainee observe me, but I'm going to do a very directed modeling with directed observation. I'm going to explain, I'm going to do X, Y, Z, go in the room, interact with the patient, and when I come out, I'm going to ask them what they noticed about how I did X, Y, Z. So we're going to make it very explicit modeling. So if you're going to do the social learning, I'm going to do the construction constructivist, and, and I think the way I will do that is to really be cognizant of the fact that the practitioner I'm working with, the resident I'm working with, may have a very different impression of an outcome or an interaction. So if I have a code, well, that's perfect, because then afterwards, uh, I, in the debrief, I'm going to take advantage of, okay, what do you perceive as having happened, uh, and what are your takeaway lessons? But it doesn't have to be a code. It, it can be sort of like Dr. Foster, uh, interviewing the same patient uh, and, and getting the same idea, or any intervention where we start to see a response. And, and that intervention response, coupled with everybody's experience is different, should offer a really good learning opportunity. I, I like that uh, idea that it doesn't have to be just codes, because when we say debrief, we kind of mean uh, something that happened at the end of a large, uh, medically complicated interaction. But, but it could be as simple as you said, just a, a, a patient encounter, uh, and then accepting that the, the trainee person who saw the same things I saw might have a very different interpretation. I remember one of the med students uh, had recalled that the doctor had examined him and looked in his ear and told me he had sinusitis. So he was sure that because he saw something funny in the ear, it must be sinusitis. And I think all of us have these experiences, medical or not, that kind of uh, uh, change the meaning of what we see. So when I listen to somebody's lungs when they have low back pain, they think that's part of really my diagnostic, diagnosis of low back pain. You already try to convince them that something you heard made you know they were a smoker, and then you asked how many packs do you smoke. So yes, I, somebody thinks that, Tom. Thanks for listening. Go out there and make better doctors. Get out there and make doctors better. Get around.